You're listening to the Doc Lounge Podcast. This is a place for candid conversations with healthcare industry's top physicians, executives, and thought leaders. This podcast is made possible by Pacific Companies, your trusted advisor in physician recruitment. I am your host, Summer Gilbert, and I am the Director of Marketing and Branding here at Pacific Companies. Our co-host today is our Director of Locum Tenens, Mr. Brian Davis. Brian, I am so happy to have you here today. We are talking to Dr. Natalie Lambasian Drummond. Dr. Natalie, um, that is what her nickname is because she is a pediatrician, so that's what we're going to call her throughout this podcast. So Dr. Natalie is going to talk to us about how the pandemic affected her practice. And then also she's going to give advice for physicians and parents on how to deal with this because it's not over. It's still going on. Um, It's better than it was. Uh, But we are going to get her expertise on this topic. And no one better to do this than Dr. Natalie herself. So thank you so much for joining us. And let's get started. So, um, first of all, Dr. Natalie, thank you so much for coming back on to the podcast. We're really excited to have you. Thank you for inviting me. It's always fun. And my co-host today is our director of locum tenens, Brian Davis. Brian, thank you for being here today. No, thanks for having me on. Appreciate it. Um, today we're going to discuss, um, the pandemic and how it affected, you as a pediatric specialist during the pandemic and then how it is now. So um, if you kind of take us to the beginning during the pandemic and safety protocols and all of that, how was it being a pediatrician in the thick of the pandemic? Well, I, I, I have a slightly different experience because I'm independent. I make my own like my own rules. So I chose to stay open the entire time. So I didn't miss a day. A lot of um, large medical groups, their medical directors made the decision to shut down and move everything to telemedicine. So my experience was a little bit different. I think what's interesting is that a lot of us, when we really think back in January or February of that year, a lot of us actually had what we thought was influenza, although we kept testing negative for influenza, and we all kind of, you know, it's pretty rare that doctors that have been in practice for a while get sick. You know, we, we get a lot of immunity from all the exposures that we have. So when something really takes us down, we're like, hmm, what is this? So looking back, I'm fairly confident I had the original OG strain of COVID at the beginning of February before we started heading into lockdown. But a lot of people that I've talked to in like the ERs and the ICUs all kind of had the same story. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, pediatrics, we, we obviously are... Uh, very focused on infection control. Most of the things that plague children are respiratory. So uh, we, do, we do our best, but children kind of bust right through that. <laughs> you, yeah. know? Like, you know, just like a mom, like, you know, a mom's badge of honor is kind of like snot on her shoulder, you know? So you, you, you have to be, you know, we, we tried very hard not to scare the kids. You know, you come out in full PPE, you know, a, a yellow gown and a mask and a, and all of this, and the kids are like, oh my God, it's an alien, you know, yeah. and they're like running, to, they're running to the door. So kind of, I mean, for myself, it was good hand washing, keeping my body strong, making sure I took care of myself, but still being there for my kids. Um, so I, I can say I've had every single strain of COVID. Um, mm-hmm. So you know, I'm, I've survived them all. And I used to joke and say, you know, somebody, can, somebody needs my plasma, feel free, come get it. Um, <laughs> We saw a lot of people get really scared and just not mm-hmm. want to leave their house because the media was like just really just, you know, so we, we saw a lot of kids missing their well child visits. We, lot, we saw a lot of kids that had you know, things that should be very easy to fix if you catch early on, um, really suffer and not get that adequate treatment, like that timely treatment, which was mm-hmm. very, very sad. Um, we had, we had a, here in Chicago, we had a teenager that passed away from appendicitis because his parents were too afraid to take him to the emergency room. Oh no. And so here's, you know, these are the things that on top of medical personnel dealing with the stress of the pandemic, you know, we, we're affected when patients die, like we are not. And so the stress level was just so incredibly high. 
Um, because also like people were not leaving their homes. We have a whole generation of young children now that have social anxiety. Um, my, one of my best friends is a, an early elementary teacher and she lovingly refers to them as the feral generation because they are, they have no social skills. They don't know cooperative play. They don't understand facial recognition. They don't understand social cues. So there's a, there, there's a big backlog of development that needs to happen. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're just getting to the point where people are coming out of their homes and, and really getting back into the doctor's office and we're playing catch up. And so a lot of subspecialty lines, ENT, general surgery, they are so backlogged because they have two and a half years of cases now that they have to get caught up on. So access to care still right now is still a problem. We're working on it and we're yeah. working on the hardest, but you have to remember when the pandemic started, just like in education, those doctors that were older and like more established and could kind of retire early, who are also at the highest risk for death and detriment from COVID were like, I'm out, you know, mm-hmm. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to retire early because I'm not about to like put my life on the line. And we also pushed out a lot of um, young graduates who really hadn't had a well-rounded education. So we got a lot of work to do. And yeah. We got a lot of things to get caught up on. And you bring up the the uh, appendicitis study or or um, appendicitis uh, death. Yeah. Um, do you think a lot of uh, the child, the children are affected by how their parents are reacting to this? So when they come and visit you, how could they not? Yeah, absolutely. You know, um, it, it's all related to how the parents are reacting to the situation. They're, they're making it way worse for the child. Right. I mean, we need, we have to try in periods of crisis to try and maintain as much of a sense of normalcy for our kids because they get scared, you know, um, and we have to be very careful. We had a lot of adults that were struggling with their own anxieties addictions. We had alcoholism and drug use go way out of control. Um, Parents who were not used to being full-time parents were like, I am not prepared for this. I don't know how I'm supposed to work and parent and keep everybody. You know, I I literally had a father came to my office because um, his wife was a nurse. So she was obviously working really long hours. He'd really never been a full-time parent. He honestly just needed an exam room to cry. It's like, I think I feel like, I feel like a failure in my job. I feel like a failure as a parent. I feel like a failure in every aspect of my life. And I don't think I'm doing a good job anywhere. And he's like, I don't want to lay this on my wife. Who's on the front lines trying to actually combat this pandemic. And he's like, I don't Mm -hmm. know what to do. And I think, you know, this is, we, we always talk about how it takes a village to raise a child. Well, we lost our communities. Yeah. We became isolated and um, it was, it was a really, really difficult time on so many levels. I mean, we're still unpacking all the damage yeah. that we that happened. I mean, obviously the pandemic was severe. We lost a lot of lives, but um, you know, as happens a lot in pediatrics, the repercussions and the reverberations of those actions that we took were never really fully considered. Mm-hmm. You know? And pediatricians were like, you can't take away kids' coping strategies. You can't take away their sports. You can't take away their friend groups. Now, teenagers are, are, they are notoriously group, they're pack animals. So yeah. did it make any, did it surprise anyone when we saw spikes in suicide, especially amongst teenage boys? No, like we saw it coming. But yeah. it didn't matter, you know, like we weren't being heard. Mm-hmm. You know, and so again, it's nobody's right or wrong. It was a horrible situation. Um, I would have liked to have seen a little bit more consideration on how this was going to affect kids. And right now, like our educational system is also kind of like stepping up and having to be a mental health system right now. They're also having to be you know, physical uh, occupational therapists and speech therapists. And, you know, it's going to, it's going to be years. Yeah, there's back on track. Yeah, there's going to be a long reper- repercussion from what's going on. Dr. Nelly, really quick, you mentioned uh, kind of developmentally, um, you know, kids were delayed. I mean, are you noticing a significant 
percentage of the, the kids coming in not hitting those traditional milestones? I mean, or is it is it all yeah. the kids really or? Well, it's particularly like uh, communication and personal social are where I'm seeing the biggest delays. And obviously the children that didn't have siblings were the ones that were impacted the most. Uh, our, here in Illinois, our early intervention system like did, uh, did their very best, but they, would, they stopped doing in-person visits really, really hard to provide speech therapy and occupational therapy services through a webcam. You know, uh, my sister's a speech therapist and she's like, I can't do my job with a mask on. Children have to see how I move my mouth. That's part of the job. So there was a lot of frustration all around, but yeah, especially the children who, when they were entering the pandemic around 18 months to two years, which is when we're starting to move towards interactive play and group dynamics, turn-taking. This is yeah. the empathy, the ability to communicate your needs. So those kids now are kindergartners and God bless kindergarten teachers. God bless them. There's a special place in heaven where they get to live because it's like herding feral cats. You know? <laughs> and, um, they're amazing. But even they'll tell you their class sizes are bigger than ever. There's a lot of teachers that have left the profession. Mm -hmm. don't support everybody's scrambling and who pays the price at the end of the day kids yeah kids. absolutely now let's um kind of move into the vaccine so as a physician um you said that you kind of control your own practice you have your own practice so you weren't necessarily forced to get the vaccine but I'm sure a lot of your peers um, were. How do you feel about that? Well, I, I did take the vaccine because I still have inpatient privileges. And it was one of the, you know, we kind of, all of us in medicine stepped up. We did our part. We knew, mm -hmm. you know, we knew this was an experiment. We had no idea how mRNA vaccines were necessarily going to affect us. We had limited data. But if anybody was going to experiment on anybody, let it be us. You know, we, that's kind of yeah. where we, we all stood, you know. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I, again, I'm, I'm fortunate. I don't have chronic health issues or other things that you always have to take into consideration when you are kind of offering yourself up. Um, so I, I did take that leap and I took it and I said, listen, I hope this gives a lot of really good data so that, you know, the people that may have other comorbid conditions, like we can figure out you know, what's the best way to control this pandemic. I think everybody was a little salty when it took a took legal action to release the data that kind of showed all of the side effects that were being reported with the vaccine. And, you know, I, like for myself, like I knew I was jumping into something that we didn't know. Like I, I, I went in with my eyes wide open. You know, I, I'm a huge advocate for informed consent. I, I tell everybody, I'm like, I'm pro-vaccine, but I'm also pro-safety and I'm pro-informed consent. And that in, informed consent is inherent to medicine, right? You have to make sure that you can explain any procedure, any medication, anything that you're doing, because you know, this, this, is, this is the foundation of our healthcare system. You know, and, yeah. and like I told you before, like, it's not about what I believe, it's about what they believe and how do we answer all the questions make some, somebody comfortable. That, that's the same whether you're giving them a vaccine or if you're taking them the OR, right? Um, and the, the trend that we're seeing that's a bit concerning is because so many adults are feeling lied to with like the information was withheld. It's really making them question all vaccines. And so we're seeing a huge surge in non-vaccines. Um, I, like I said, I run my own practice. I have a lot of families in my, my practice who don't vaccinate or who do selective vaccination. You know, um, this idea that one size fits all is never a good idea in medicine. I understand why, you know, obviously we want herd immunity. We want these diseases squashed. Um, but I think parents are at the point now where they're like, they're feeling a little upset. They're feeling a little lied to. They're they are feeling a little insecure about their ability to trust the government's um, protecting of their interest. And 
the virus has, has mutated to such a mild strain where there's very little morbidity and mortality for children. They're like, well, exactly why should I offer up my child at this point? I'm like, we, we have very little safety data. And, you know, like mm-hmm. we talked offline, in order to bring a drug to market, it requires a really long safety surveillance period. Yeah. And we've, we've had vaccines that have gone through this whole vetting. There was a vaccine called RotaShield that was for rotavirus that had gone through full FDA approval and had been on the market less than a year. And there was all these case reports of intussusception. And you know, we sounded the alarm as pediatricians and said, we're going to yank it from the market, reinvestigate it for safety. And then it came back as road attack or, you know, like a different, a different vaccine after they reinvestigated for their safety. So I think right now, a lot of parents are like, Hey, I'm not sure anybody has my best interest at heart. And they are taking it upon themselves. So like, I want to know the data. I want to read about all these vaccines. Mm -hmm. And it's very confusing because there's a lot of different voices out there. They don't know who to trust. Normally that person should be your doctor. Yeah, they're even even doubting their employed doctor who is being told what to say. Yeah. And and that is that's a problem. And sometimes they're stopping kids from being able to go into a group if they're not vaccinated. Oh, we're we're seeing the a lot of the large medical groups here firing patients for not vaccinated. I didn't start off having a solo practice where I, I had a large number of non-vaxxers. Um, but I personally don't feel like if, if you have, I approach my relationship with my parents as collaborative. I'm not their parent. I'm not a dictator. You know, my job is to explain the data, to explain why it's in their child's best interest to be vaccinated. If it is in their best interest, this idea that, Vaccines are 100% safe. Like I went to Washington, D.C. to discuss vaccine safety. And I remember when I pulled into Washington, D.C., there was this huge billboard that said vaccines are 100% safe. Uh, no, you cannot say that. You can't say that. No. That is a lie. You can have an allergic reaction to Motrin, you know? Yeah. And so um, I, I feel like, I feel like we've, we've stopped having educated and collegiate conversations about how we can make things better. Mm -hmm. So one of the things that I challenged the senators when I was talking with them about was pull the DTAP insert. And I said, okay, let's take a look at the clinical data. And in the DTAP insert, it said there is a 0.09% neurological complication. You multiply that by 30 million children in the U.S. Where are all those kids, right? And so I said, I, I challenged them. I said, I want you to go back to your states. I want you to call your government office, the VAERS reporting system, and find out, are the number of cases being reported to VAERS meeting at least the threshold that the pharmaceutical company reported during the FDA approval process? Mm-hmm. And I got calls from many senators. They're like, you're right, I did it. So where are all those kids? And I said, well, that's the problem. By denying that there could possibly be like an untoward effect from a vaccine, creating this culture where nobody's allowed to talk about it. Nobody is allowed to report it. It, you know, we've stopped the discussion. We've stopped progress. Yeah. I think vaccines are one of the greatest medical inventions of the last century, but are they without risk? Absolutely not. Yeah. Injury happens. You know, it happens. That's why we have a fund. We have a federal fund Mm -hmm. to, to pay out for that. And I'm not anti-vaccine, but for those parents listening, what would you tell them um, about getting their child vaccinated and at what age? I mean, are you talking specifically COVID vaccine or are you talking all vaccine? COVID vaccine specifically. Well, um, I, again, my job, the way I approach it is I am a child's advocate. I have to meet the threshold of first to no harm. That's the very first vow that I took in medicine. And I, I was hesitant. I said, no, I'm like, until you show me the data, until you can tell me that this is safe, I'm like, you're not giving it to my patients. Like, I'm, I refuse to support it. And the AAP had their very first webinar, yes, what, Wednesday. 
where the medical directors of Moderna and Pfizer started presenting the data. And the data is limited. You know, we have less than a year. Um, we've got mainly a Caucasian representation in our sample size. Um, you know, I'm not, like I said, it has nothing to do with whether I am pro or anti-vax. It's about, let's look at the science. The science is just not there yet. And what really makes me angry is, you know, I've, I've lost children to cancer. Um, and, and there have been like medications and treatments in the FDA approval pipeline that could have possibly been life-saving. We don't know. And parents were begging they're like, listen, my child is going to die anyway. And if this could possibly save them, let's try it. If it doesn't, this is going to give scientists really good information so that they can maybe fight cancer. Like, um, I remember President Trump in his State of the Union address said he was going to work on kind of cutting through that red tape. So I was kind of frustrated. I'm like, I don't you know where, how, how is something that right now where COVID has been fairly mild with children and like this somehow like rush right through the pipeline and we've got children dying of cancers all over the US saying, hey, we want those drugs that are being in development. And they're like, nope, we need five years to monitor for safety. You know, and so you're getting, you know, the parents are getting these mixed messages and they're getting they're I'm like the good news, parents are are re-engaging and and starting to think critically. What's sad about that is that they can't expect their doctors to do that for them, which is what a doctor is supposed to do. Dr. Natalie, how are you addressing when a parent comes in, you know, the healthy child, you know, uh, four years old, how are you addressing when they're asking questions like, are there long-term side effects? When, like you said a moment ago, we don't truly know. How are you as you know, practitioner are saying that? I, I literally, I, I, if you ask any of my patients, I will tell you, I'm nothing but I'm very honest and transparent. I'm like, we simply do not know what the long-term ramifications of an mRNA vaccine are. We just started injecting them less than a year ago. You know, and pediatrician, you ask any pediatrician, they'll always tell you, children are not little adults. They have different physiologies. They react differently. So when you try and extrapolate adult data down to pediatrics, it's not, not in their best interest. Um, you know, Again, this has been highly argued even amongst ourselves, you know, in our doctor lounges. Like we're all, you know, everybody feels very strongly about this. So it's not an easy decision. But I was telling you that I had somebody who's like, well, this this was like the polio epidemic, right? Like, no, it's not, you know, because children were dying from polio. They were in iron lungs, they were paralyzed, they were permanently damaged. Right now, the BA5, which is kind of the predominant strain in our area, has been a day of like mild fevers and a runny nose. So parents are like, no, I'm, not, I'm not sure I'm ready to take that leap of faith um, when the symptoms are so mild. And, you know, I think, I think we, we have, as far as our patients having faith in us, in the government, in the approval process, we just step back in time about 20 years. And we're seeing a huge resurgence of people now declining all vaccines, which is going to be very dangerous um, moving forward. Are there any kids in particular, you know, immunocompromised, mm -hmm. kids with respiratory issues that you would, you know, obviously the, the long-term data isn't necessarily there, but are any of these people, kids specifically kind of prime candidates, maybe they want to consider it more so than another child, or are we just not there yet? Well, I mean, we typically talk about, you know, the two ends of the lifespan, you know, the very young and the very old are always the most vulnerable to any type of infectious agency. Um, you know, so a lot of the kids, from my, from my understanding, at least, again, limited data, um, that succumbed to COVID, had a lot of comorbidities. We had a couple of preemies in the NICU here in Chicago that lost their lives to COVID because but they, you know, they were they had really bad lung problems, things like that. So like when Delta, Delta was a horrible strain. Um, that was when they kind of preyed on a lot of those vulnerable um, kids. But even, I have two children right now, they're on vents and they're vent dependent and they have very complex medical histories. Both of them have had now COVID twice because home health nurses have brought that in unbeknownst to them because a lot of times they're shedding virus before they're even symptomatic. 
What was interesting is both of the kids we ended up admitting to the PICU just for monitoring, they seemed to sail through it. Both of their mothers ended up in the hospital. Mm-hmm. But it was the parents that actually, and they were both vaccinated. Wow. So it's hard to, again, it's kind of hard to say, at least in the pedi- my pediatric community, that the typical rules that usually hold true, like, okay, you have chronic disease, you're immunocompromised, doesn't see, it didn't really seem to be the same. Yeah. So, um, you know, obviously we, again, it's always weighing your pros and your cons. People have forgotten, business has forgotten that medicine at its core is an art, not a science. We talk about the practice of the art of medicine. It's about knowing your patient, their individual characteristics, you know, looking at everything in, you know, not in protocols and pathways and all of this, but what's going on in this particular situation? And how do I think critically about this situation and make the best decision for my patient? Yeah. So, you know, I do, I have, I have children with Rett syndrome. My kids that have chronic lung disease, you know, that is a really difficult decision to sit down with parents. A lot of my parents opted to not vaccinate, but to homeschool and, and, and kind of segregate their kids. Mm-hmm. You know, like we're just not, we're just not willing to go there just yet. Yeah. This is a very important subject because this is new having this available to children. Yeah. I, like I said, you know, I, whenever I, for any new treatment, any new medication on the market, any new vaccine, I always look at it through the lens of, does it meet the threshold of the very first vial that I took in medicine, which is to first do no harm. And I, it doesn't matter whether it's the COVID vaccine or a new medication that's on the market. If I'm just not there, I'm just not there. Now, this is why it's important for you know drug reps and pharmaceutical companies and CME companies to be able to educate us to try and get us there. Right? Mm-hmm. It was radio silence this entire pandemic. You know, like I talked to my friends who are pharmacists. They were getting they were getting injections that had no package insert. And even pharmacists were like, we're very uncomfortable about this. Like we're injecting things into arms and we don't even have a, a package insert or data to look at. We, we are also scientists, you know, and it's our job to read the science, digest the science and explain the science to our mm-hmm. patients. And there kind of was this paternalistic approach like, oh, well, you need to just, they respect you. And so therefore you need to tell them that, that they need to do this because it's what's best for them. And you just have to take us on faith. And I'm like, yeah. yeah, that's not my job. My job is not to take you on faith. My job is for you to tell me this, the science and then for me to decide whether or not I think it's a good option for my patient. Yeah. Are you seeing uh, side effects now that it is um, available? Um, I had two kids who my teenagers who developed myocarditis um, after receiving the COVID vaccine. Um, okay. and again, we still don't understand why that happens. And, you know, some of the most compelling research is coming out of Europe. So like I have to say the Israeli health ministry is really Israel and Germany really impressed me through this whole pandemic. Their health ministries have been amazing. Um, they've been very reactive, very involved, very transparent. Um, so most of the data that I've been watching has been coming out of those two places. And these um, were boys they were both boys. Um, they were both healthy um, athletes uh-huh. uh, who uh, started experiencing kind of like shortness of breath. And, and they, they kind of described like a heaviness to their chest. Okay. Uh, so they, you know, they did develop some myocarditis. Now they are recovering. And, you know, just like they did say, you know, most of the kids typically recover from it. But what really bothered them is they were out of play. They weren't allowed. You know, these, this is, these are kids that sports is their world. And then now the cardiologist is saying, sorry, you can't participate in sports for the next six months. And they were already, they'd already kind of like, people don't understand that those sports are their coping strategies for life. You know, it's more than just a game for them. Like this is how they work through their stress. This is their social connection. So it's, it was a huge hit to their life and they were very depressed and we had to work through a lot of mental health issues after that. When I'm like, sorry, you know, the cardiologist says you can't play, you can't play. Mm-hmm. And we don't understand why did healthy, why did two healthy boys develop this? You know, yep. um, 
Those are the questions. How old were they, if you don't mind me asking? One was 16. The other one was 17. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And one Gosh, of them was that's a scary. Here, was a star athlete who was trying to get his scholarships. He got pulled from play. So he really had a hard time. Mm-hmm. No. So, yeah. That's that's scary. Thing. So, yeah, there is no right or wrong, you know, like any life exists in the shades of gray. Mm-hmm. This is where we need to have open dialogue, not only amongst ourselves, amongst scientists and health professionals, but with our patients. And we have yeah. to be honest and say, yeah, look, you don't know. This is, we need to do weigh the pros and cons of your situation. And we have to make an educated and informed choice. Yeah. And we then live when we've done that and we've met that threshold, there are consequences. We deal with the consequences with a clear conscience. And I think a lot of parents and patients were like, yeah, nobody warned me this could happen. And I, I blindly walked into this and now they're angry. And now, you know, now I'm having problems getting my college students to take their men B vaccine, which is absolutely necessary if they're going to be living in dorms. Yeah. You know? And that's, that's, that's again, another tragedy. Yeah. yeah. Are you finding that on kind of the other side of that spectrum, the people that come in and are saying, yes, I want my child to have be vaccinated, you know, specifically for COVID. Are they asking the same questions? Are they, are they kind of, uh, as detail oriented with, with their fact finding on that, or are they just saying, let's do it, let's move on? So my, a lot of my families that were early volunteers basically are now coming to me going, oh my gosh, do we need to do an echo? Can you do an EKG? Like there were, there were pediatric practices that wouldn't clear kids for sports who had received the COVID vaccine unless they did an EKG. And I remember calling um, the AAP going, um, are you guys gonna comment on this? Like, mm-hmm. like we've already, t- we've already talked about how doing routine EKGs on all athletes was not like, you know, like it was not the right thing to do based on the data that we had looked at. But now does that recommendation change with these concerns with myocarditis? You know, when should we be monitoring these kids? How long after should we, again, everybody was like, oh, we don't know. So we had some pediatricians that took a more um, defensive stance. And they're like, listen, I'm going to check everybody's heart that had it. Mm. And, and then there are others like, well, if you have symptoms, then we're going to check. You know, so again, there was just this kind of mass confusion. So rolling out a whole program without kind of educating the people that are supposed to get informed consent to me felt really off. Mm-hmm. So when they asked if my site, you know, like my clinic would be a site, I was like, no, I'm not there. Not there. Yeah. Okay. So you guys aren't at your clinic. You guys aren't giving vaccines right at this time. Not the COVID vaccine. Um, The state of Illinois, again, I don't, I can't talk about other states and this may have changed, but part of, and when you decided to be a COVID site, it was mandatory enrollment in a program here in Illinois called the iCares program, which basically allowed the government in the state to walk, to like get into your patient's charts to look at their vaccines. And that to me was a HIPAA violation. Like Absolutely. That was a circumvented HIPAA. And I'm like, yeah, I'm like, I can't enroll in iCares without all these patients individually saying, okay, yes, you can have access to my chart. So I was like, no, I'm sorry, not doing that. My patient's privacy is very important to me. And so I was like, so the patients of mine that wanted the COVID vaccine didn't get it in my office. They went somewhere else. And and that was, again, another important thing. Like, I understand we are in an an emergency use. I understand we're in a pandemic. That doesn't mean I have to throw HIPAA out the window. No. Yeah. I always wonder that with employers and certain situations where they're like, you can only do this or you can only work here if you have your vaccine. And to me, I was like, well, isn't that, and I, and I haven't read all the papers. I'm, you know, uh, I, I don't know. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Um, and so that, that's definitely as a, a physician, you know, asking someone that that is a HIPAA violation. Right. You know, it's just like, oh, have you ever been treated for an STD? How is that relevant to me doing my job? 
you know, it's hard. You know, I understand, you know, when it comes to health departments and, and you know, government policy, we have to also think about you know, the entire society as a whole. I understand that. But mm-hmm. where does personal freedom and where does responsibility for the rest of the world come to play? Um, a lot of my families who don't vaccinate have been really persecuted. You know, a lot of their argument is like, well, if your vaccines work, why do you care if my kid's not vaccinated? Mm-hmm. Your child's vaccinated, your child's protected, right? Yeah. So, you know, there's just, again, like many other things in this country, the divide is happening. Yeah. And that scares me. You know, like yeah. we need to be able to have dialogue. We need to be able to talk to each other, not yell at each other, not hate each other, point the fingers. You know, like none of that, that has to end. No, it has to end. Yeah. Brian, as a recruiter, are you noticing, because I, I, I've i been noticing doing some of um, the marketing for you guys that some of the facilities are saying, you know, uh, COVID-19 vaccine required. Are you seeing a lot of pushback from your physicians or no? Uh, a mix. Um, a lot of the providers, you know, when things first started, they had the early access to the vaccines. And so a lot of them did get vaccinated. There was a good number that held out. um, And um, they, you know, they have given multiple different reasons. And unfortunately, you know, some providers that don't believe necessarily just in the science of it have been forced almost sometimes to resort to other exemptions, you know what I mean? And, and, And leaning on be it religious exemptions or anything else, because the healthcare organizations really do are enforcing it and requiring it. And more and more of those exemptions, you know, even as time goes on are actually disappearing. You would think it'd be the opposite potentially that there'd be more reason that people could have exemptions for it. It's actually quite the opposite. They're just really cracking down saying, you are not stepping foot in this hospital unless you are vaccinated as a provider. Well, and you have to remember, we're also living in an era where we can disseminate information so much more readily. So we had, we had ICU nurses refusing to get vaccinated, being marched out by security, filming it the entire time. Mm-hmm. You know, you had police officers being told that they couldn't report for duty and it's all out on social media and TikTok and Instagram. And, you know, so it really is a very different age right now. You know, um, like, again, we, we just weren't ready for this, mm-hmm. nor how this was going to really go down. And I believe that your body is your own. You have the right to put anything to do to it, whatever you want. And, you know, this idea that if you don't do what you are being told to do, like, what are we, so are we going to start firing diabetics who eat cake or like, you know, the, the, the guy who has asthma that chooses to smoke, you know, like, yeah. where does it end? You know? Yeah. And I understand as a healthcare provider, because you're around certain uh, diseases, that yes, you should take vaccines, but those vaccines have, like we were talking about, have been took 10 to 12 years of studying and um, testing before they became available to the public and approved by the FDA. And now we're changing the rules and, you know, we're making people get something that's was brought to market you know, in, in less than a year. Right. And, you know, there were early studies, like Israel's doing a study looking at how the mRNA protein was coming out through the ovaries. So there was concerns about reproductive issues. Mm-hmm. A lot of women that were in medicine were like, listen, I'm trying to have a child. We have no idea what this does. Um, I'm not, you know, pregnant women were always hands off. You know, you could never, you couldn't even give them Tylenol without talking to the OBGYN, right? You know, you I used to moonlight in the ER. Like you had to, once they were pregnant, it's like they were off limits, you know? So all of a sudden they're like, oh no, no, no. You need to take this. Like what? Wait a second. Um, I, I, where is, where's the safety data? Is it category C? Like, how do we know it's a category C? It's just mm-hmm. kind of like that kind of safety rating. And I, I talked to a lot of my OBGYN friends who they themselves had concerns and they were like, yeah, but we're being told by our medical directors that we're not allowed to sing. Yeah. And that when doctors are put in an ethical conundrum, 
they don't react well because we are bred to be leaders in our community. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, I kind of feel like that trend is changing, which kind of scares me a little bit because there's this whole checks and balances that's inherent to the system that is kind of being disrupted. And at the end of the day, the people that are going to, the, the patients will suffer. Yeah. You know? Brian, so. as a parent, what's your biggest concern? What's one of your biggest concerns about your children and, and this COVID-19 vaccination? I think uh, there, there's two things, really. I mean, I think one, you know, we've been through it now. My son's going to turn three years old next week. He's been enrolled in daycare the entire time, you know, just a cesspool of germs uh, <laughs> of any sort of thing. And um, I think that because he's been in it for two years and he's thankfully never tested positive for COVID, you know, he's had normal, you know, colds and whatnot. My concern is at this point, does he need it? He's gotten through the first two years. One, does he need it? And two, do we know the long-term effects given the fact that he's been two years, he's done fine and, and whatnot. Those are probably my two things. And and, and Dr. Natalie, I think what you touched on earlier about informed consent, um, I think, you know, when I go for that three-year-old checkup, I mean, it's just about asking questions. I think that's what's most important for parents, right? And mm-hmm. and really understanding what's best for your kid, I think is what I'm hearing you say. And people can make the decision at that point, right? I 1,000% agree. Well, and here's the other thing too. So there was some preliminary data when they contact traced, I think it was Finland, I'm remembering correct, where they, they couldn't find any transmission from a prepubertal child to an adult. And they talked about how it, it appeared that the back, the viral load in children was much lower and that they didn't aerosolize, right? So that was kind of like, hmm, okay. So are, is your son testing negative because his viral load is low and, and therefore is under the threshold of our detection test? Because if I were to draw blood on him and look for antibodies, but I find antibodies, even though he never tested positive. And I have a lot of kids whose parents were like, I want to check antibody status before we consider vaccinating. We've never tested positive, but when I checked their antibodies, were robust antibodies. Yeah. So, it's interesting. Yeah. You know, so that's another option. You know, again, I am I'm very grateful. I have a very educated and engaged patient population. I'm one of those doctors, I love it when my patients question me. I'm like, challenge me, let's get to the answer together. There is a lot of doctors and there are a lot of um, institutions where that is really not treasured. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Gosh. Well, thank you so much for educating us. I mean, and, and it sounds like you're still being educated daily on, on what's going on. I tell my the- patients, I've been an active student my entire career. I have like, I've got like more degrees in my and the more I learn, the more I realize I know nothing. <laughs> we know nothing. <laughs> yeah. you know, the more educated you get, the more you realize, my gosh, there's so much to know. And you yeah. don't know so much. So it's got to be honest. Yeah. And, and what it, kind of an ending, what would you, what would you tell parents um, right now, you know, how to react and, and how to um, help their kids get through, through this time? I think first and foremost, I think you need to make sure you as a parent are in a good place. We have a lot of parents who are suffering, like I said, from addiction, anxiety disorders. You know, you can't hide that. You can't, like, you know, when they talk about, you can't be an effective parent unless you yourself are also taking care of yourself. You know, mm-hmm. Like, put that oxygen mask on first and then go ahead and put it on your child. So we really need to help our adults kind of recover so that they can be effective um, second of all, um, particularly my parents who have children under the age of five, I'm asking them when you go to playgrounds, kids are going to hit, they're going to be, they're going to fight. Please be mature, model good conflict resolution skills. Don't like get into a fist fight with the other dad because that child, you know, that child pushed your child down. So I'm seeing bad behavior on, you know, adults. we need to model behavior to help our kids get through this. Mm-hmm. You also need to meet kids at a, at a place where they can understand, let them ask questions and answer them appropriately based on what they can understand. You know, when you hide things from kids, they catastrophize in your head. So they make it a lot worse. You know, it's, we're, we're going to have to coach kids through their anxiety, which means we 
you can push them a little out of the nest. Go engage. You're going to be fine. And it's hard. Yeah. It's hard when your child is struggling, but you need to be strong and you need to make them face that fear and see everything's okay. Go out and play in the playground. Yeah. Um, and the other thing that I would tell parents is like, please don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. Now, like you have legitimate concerns about the COVID vaccine. So do a lot of us. And we are you know, getting that information and we're digesting the data as it comes out. But that doesn't mean that your child doesn't need a tetanus shot. You know, that doesn't mean that your child, yeah. doesn't, you know, I, I, I get asked a lot as a pediatrician, like which vaccine is really, really I'm like, well, from a worldwide perspective, they're all important, you know, but I, I practice primarily in an agricultural community. I'm like, you don't want to not have a tetanus shot and be on a farm. You know, you yeah. just don't. Yeah. So please don't vilify. like, please stop everybody jumping to these broad, broad conclusions, these generalizations, you know, like let's just treat each other with grace and compassion. Let's start having good conversations. And we're going to show this next generation that we can work through it as adults with good communication skills and the yeah. ability to, to disagree and still be a community. Yeah. Do your research. You know, I think there's such conflicting information that no matter what my stance is politically, I listen to both sides so, so that I can come to my own conclusion. Yeah. I had and a dad who told me that was like, I did more research on the car I bought than I ever did on the vaccines for my child. And he's like, now I feel like I'm going back and having to like <laughs> all these different perspectives. Mm -hmm. and he's like, I'm really more confused. And I'm, I'm asking you to help me. Like what is in the best interest of my child? And that's where I am like, well, your child is healthy. There's no family history of any vaccine issues. There's no chronic disease. And I'm like, I think we should move forward. Yeah. Yeah. It's going to be a really interesting next decade. I mean, <laughs> my, my, my last question for you, do you think masks are still appropriate right now? So um, I have gone on record. I am not a mask advocate. I never okay. have been. I tell everybody, I'm like, that's like wearing a mesh condom and then getting upset when you got pregnant. You know, like <laughs> viral particles can go yeah. through a cloth. They can go through yeah. a surgical mask. Um, I worked alongside the Navy and if you're dealing with a respiratory pathogen, you need an N95, you need a tuberculin seal so that those respiratory pathogens cannot get in. Um, I don't personally feel that the, the vet, developmental hit that children took from wearing, from, from wearing all these masks was worth it. And yeah. I, I see the mask that these kids bring in, like they pull their nose in it. Oh, they're, 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 literally, they're trading their masks with their, the other kids in their classroom. And you're just like, yeah. I'm like, if you really are asking children to be model infection control agents, I'm like, we've got healthcare workers that aren't even wearing masks properly. Yeah. You know? So I just, I really don't feel like that was the answer. Yeah. And in medicine, you know, we mask the sick, we don't mask the healthy. Yeah. You know? So I really, really, really hope that you don't go back, you know, to a mask mandate. Oh, I just, too. I just really don't think that it's in the best interest for our kids. Yeah, I agree. Well, thank you so much for your information and for what you do. Um, and uh, for those of you that are listening, um, Dr. Natalie did do an amazing story about a crazy case. Um, a neurological um, case, and it was incredible. It's one of our top listened to. So you can go back and listen listen to that. So let us know if you have any more interesting cases like that. But for right now, for what we're going through, what our world is going through, um, I think this was an important conversation. And Brian, you know, thank you for jumping in for someone who has. Um, you know, young child and, um, yeah, it's, it's so important to ask those questions and, you know, every doctor is going to have different answers, but, um, you know, I, I appreciate you taking the time and, and giving us your feedback. Absolutely. And thank you, Dr. Natalie. This is a good conversation. You know, there was one thing I wanted to touch on that we didn't get to, and this is something that Brian and I were talking before 
Um, if you really want to talk to a pediatrician and what makes them kind of quake in their boots, that's RSV, right? RSV has killed mm. infants left and right for decades. We didn't mask up all of our adults who only have a mild cold in order to save all of our babies who are dying from RSV. Yeah. And so I'm actually, as a pediatrician, really concerned about the RSV season. We had, there was an, a couple of infectious disease doctors that came out and said, we have, RSV has been absent now for three years. We now have three years of children who have no immunity to RSV. Wow. What is that going to look like in the fall if RSV comes and is virulent? Wow. You know, so we, as, as a pediatrician, I'm bracing for impact of RSV season than I am COVID. RSV, when you see a child on a ventilator, like literally drowning in their own secretions, oh. you're feeling very helpless to do anything. And we, you know, yeah. where, where's, where's that vaccine, right? Yeah. <laughs> we have synergies for preemies, but where, where is the routine vaccine to get rid of that? Mm-hmm. Because that affects way more children every year and yeah. in, in a much more detrimental way with chronic lung disease and, and scarring. Yeah, so, that's a great point. I, I hope to challenge the pharmaceutical companies. Hey, can we get on that? Yeah. Start working on that. I'd like to see that go away in my lifetime. Yeah. Any advice to other pediatricians listening to this? I think pediatricians need to go back to their roots and remember who they work for. You know, I tell every parent, I'm like, I don't work for you. I actually work for your child. You may pay my bills, but it's your child's best interest. And, and they are the one that is the center of every decision that I make. And pediatricians, just like citizens of this country, have to get re-engaged, re-involved in the process. They need to get their voices heard. They need to, they need to not be afraid of losing their job or their license to bring up things that they see that are concerning them. Because at the end of the day, it's okay to even bring up a concern and be wrong. You still need to bring up the concern. So that mm-hmm. it can be investigated. So at the end of the day, this checks and balances so it keeps our kids safe. Yeah. So I, I would tell, I, I think we're going to see a huge precipitation of physicians out of employed positions back into independent practice because they realize, oh my gosh, when I took this job, I didn't realize I was trading on my ability to be an advocate and mm-hmm. being told what to do to keep my job. So yeah. I, I really feel like we're going to see a decentralization as much as the large groups are trying to buy up everybody and bring everybody together. I think that diversification is going to happen. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you so much. It was nice talking to you. Thanks so much. Okay. Nice to meet you. Bye. 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 Thank you to all our listeners. If you'd like to be notified when new episodes air, make sure to hit that subscribe button. And a big thank you to Pacific Companies. Without you guys, this podcast could not be possible. If you would like to be a guest, go to www.pacificcompanies.com. Thank you.